It's week four of our Lenten sermon series, Let Justice Roll, and we've been reflecting on what it means to live into our baptism, a ritual in which we celebrate that we are named and claimed by God as beloved, and that we are called to be agents of salvation, in which we promise together to renounce wickedness, reject the evil powers of this world, and to repent of our sin in which we also commit as a community to nurture one another and to be Christ's representatives in the world. One of the things that we as Christ's representatives promise to do is when someone is being baptized is we promise to surround that person with a community of love and forgiveness. And we do this, we make this promise, because we want for that person to experience God's love so powerfully in tangible and real ways through the body of believers that that person might grow in their trust of God and grow into and be found faithful in their service to others. That's what we're called to do. That's what we say we will do. Love and forgiveness is what we receive from God through Jesus Christ. And thank God, thank God that Jesus chose love. Even as they crucified him, Jesus chose love. Even as some people crouched at the foot of his cross, casting lots so that they could figure out how to separate his clothing he chose love. Even as the leaders standing around sneered at him and as the soldiers keeping watch mocked him, as one of the criminals hanging right there beside him insulted him, and as so many others just stood around and watched, Jesus chose love. And he expressed that love by extending forgiveness. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. From the cross, Jesus chose love. It takes your breath away. Nadine Collier chose love in the midst of bearing a very painful cross. Just two days after Dylan Roof gunned down nine African Americans during a Bible study at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, Miss Collier, just two days later, faced Dylan Roof in a courtroom, the man who had brutally murdered her mother and between sobs spoke three words that absolutely stunned the nation. I forgive you. She wasn't the only one amongst those who had lost people in this senseless act of violence. Several of the close relatives of Ruth's victims extended forgiveness, even though he wasn't at all sorry. At least, 
In the midst of pain, I choose love. These words that we just sang, they were written in response to their stunning expression of grace. It was such a striking expression that the world debated for quite some time, and I imagine still does, the limits and expectations and merits of forgiveness. I mean, what is it fair to expect in terms of forgiveness? And to what extent should we extend forgiveness? I mean, should we forgive such horrible, horrible acts? I mean, what about repentance? Doesn't that play a role in there somewhere? I mean, do we forgive a person even if they aren't sorry? Even if they don't think they did anything wrong? Even if they don't see what they did as sin? Are we still expected to forgive? It may be that you remember the story that occurs in the book of Acts about the disciple Stephen. He has been condemned to death by stoning by the person who would later become the Apostle Paul, but at that point is still Saul, the Pharisee, who is hunting down and persecuting Christians for their faith. Stephen is being stoned. He's in the act of being stoned. And with some of his very last breaths, he prays, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. The people are in the act of stoning him. They haven't confessed of their sin. They haven't asked for forgiveness. Jesus, he doesn't even refer to the things that those he forgives have done as sin. He says, they don't know what they're doing. They're clueless. They don't understand, they don't realize, they're not perceiving correctly. They just don't get it, God. And even though they show absolutely no remorse whatsoever, he practices what he preached earlier in the, in the book of Luke. Earlier in Luke's gospel, we hear Jesus preaching to people to forgive their enemies, to love their enemies, to turn the other cheek, and to pray even for those who would abuse them. Jesus chose love. Felicia Sanders chose love. She lost her son, Tawanza. We welcomed you Wednesday night at our Bible study with welcome arms, she choked out between sobs. Dylan Roof spent the better part of an hour studying the Bible with this group of people before opening fire. They had welcomed him warmly. He even admitted that in his confession. He said, you know, I almost didn't go through with it because they were so nice to me. And even though he took her son from her in a senseless, cold-blooded, hateful act, bearing what I imagine was an excruciating cross, Miss Sanders chose love. May God have mercy on your soul, she said. Y'all, I don't know if I could do it. I just don't know if I could forgive somebody who had murdered my child. 
And I consider myself to be a fairly gracious person. I don't think I could do it. It is hard work. Still, as those who are representatives of Christ, as those who are agents of salvation, it is work that we're called to. It's the cross we have inherited. (coughs) The work of reconciliation is our work, too. Through Christ, we are reconciled to God. And Christ in us gives us the power of reconciliation among us. We can be restored to one another through that same power that reconciles us to God. Especially if both parties participate fully, which I know in most cases we have very little control of and sometimes just doesn't happen. But I have seen marriages that I would have thought were irreparably shattered, made whole again, end up stronger actually than they were in the first place because they chose love. I've seen parent and child, brother and sister, estranged from each other for years reconcile because they chose love. I've seen broken friendships mended because they chose love. It's work that we are called to. We're called to it on a larger scale too. In 1864, there were 168 defenseless defenseless Native Americans who were killed in what is now referred to as the Sand Creek Massacre. And there were several Methodist leaders in Colorado who were complicit in that act. The local Union Army troops who carried out the massacre, they were led by a Methodist clergyman named Colonel John M. Shivington. And the act was approved by John Evans, who was the Colorado Territorial Governor and a prominent Methodist layman. Neither of them was punished or censored by the church. In 2012, at the General Conference, the United Methodist Church took part in an act of repentance for past abuse toward Native and Indigenous people, and they emphasized the Sand Creek Massacre. They also passed a resolution at that particular General Conference to open a process of confession and healing with other Indigenous people who have been harmed. There's still work to do, of course. But it was a beginning. A beginning was made. And we all know that there's broader work that is being done in the area of race relations in our country. Another area where there is still a lot of work to be done. But it's work that we can participate in, work that we're called to participate in through our daily lives, through interactions with people who are different from us, through learning and through engaging in conversation by advocating for people who are um, oppressed or marginalized because of their race or their ethnicity. I hope that we as a church, Westlake United Methodist Church, will have an opportunity within the next year to host an event that is um, sponsored by the Amos Commission, which is a commission of justice um, here in our district, and The event is called Undoing Racism. It's an opportunity over the course of a couple of days to come together in a larger group and learn about all the things that play into 
racism in our country and to learn through conversation also about how we can respond, how we can help to heal that divide. Forgiveness is one of the hardest things that we're asked to do. I mean, when we've been hurt, it's hard to forgive, especially when the person or the institution or the system that harmed you doesn't seem affected at all and seems completely unrepentant. I mean, we wonder, what in the world's the point of that? They could care less that they hurt me. Well, here's one point. I mean, the harm that we've experienced, if we don't forgive, if we don't work toward forgiveness, it can fester and become deep-seated resentment, which can stifle our capacity to love in all areas of our life. Someone once said that refusing to forgive another person, it's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Each day, we have to choose. Will we let the difficult things in life fester in us? Will we allow resentment to rob us of joy? Or are we going to allow the work of forgiveness to make way for love in our lives, to make way for love in our relationships and in our communities? We're called and we promise to be communities of love and forgiveness. Y'all know how we pass the peace every week in worship? Well, we practice this as a means of living into our commitment to be a community that loves and forgives. It feels really awkward sometimes, especially if you don't know the people around you or if you're visiting a new church. We don't know, are we supposed to shake hands? Are we supposed to hug? Do we do a half hug? Do we just kind of wave across the room? It gets a little bit awkward, but you know what? In the early church, it wasn't any of those options. In the early church, it was a kiss on the mouth. In the early church, it was called the kiss of peace because the belief was that the spirit resided in the breath. And so to exchange a kiss with another person was literally to exchange the spirit of Christ with another person. This holy kiss was also practiced as part of the baptism ritual. It was a sign that the spirit had taken up residence in the one who had been baptized. Unless you think it wasn't all that radical for the people in the early church to kiss a perfect stranger on the lips, that is not true. Even in the early church, the only people that they would routinely kiss on the mouth would be another blood relative, somebody who was very close to them. It was largely through this ritual kiss that we as a church came to understand ourselves as family. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask y'all to kiss each other today. <laughs> but I do hope that knowing um, how the passing of the peace kind of evolved in the church might enrich your experience of the practice in future Sundays. I hope that it will help you to realize that in Christ, as the body of Christ, we're called to interact with one another deeply. We are called to relate to one another intimately. We are family this body of Christ. I want you to turn to somebody near you, preferably someone who's not blood related to you, and say, you're family. We're family. Can y'all do that?